You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. It's important to know what we believe. If you've uh, not been with us before, or this, you haven't been with us in a while, for a while, we've been going through the book of John. Um, we've been, we started in the book of John back in January, and we're, this morning we're going to wrap up our study of John chapter 7. We spent the last three weeks going over it, and we've come to find that in these 52 verses of John chapter 7, that the question that continues to pop up is, is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus the Son of God? And how we answer that question has a tremendous amount of bearing on, on how we live our lives, on how we act, on how we worship. Last week I told you guys that the answer to the question, who is Jesus, is the most important question that you will ever have to ask and answer. Who is Jesus? John wants us to see Jesus for who he is, that he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. John tells us at the end of this gospel the reason why he wrote this gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he says this, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the question remains, at the end of the book of John, what will you do with Jesus? John writes his gospel so that we will believe, but what will you believe? Will you believe what Jesus says? Will you believe in who Jesus is? In this morning text, we're going to read and hear a beautiful invitation from Jesus, a call to take him at his word, a call to know and to love him, a call to taste and to see that he is good. And then we'll look at a response from the crowd, and we'll look at a response from the religious elite. We'll see that the response to that call is not always good. But before we do that, let's let's dive in, let's, let's uh Pray. Father God, I pray that as we open up your word, as we look at this last section of John chapter 7, Lord, that you would illuminate your scripture, that you would open us up to what it is the Spirit has to say to us this morning. Lord, that we can truly answer the question, who is Jesus? That we would have a right response to that, that we would trust and believe that he is the Son of God, the Messiah and that we may have eternal life in that belief. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, it says this. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So these opening three verses of John chapter 7, verse 39 through 30, or 36 through 30, 37 through 39, we see this invitation that Jesus gives. A few weeks ago, I spent a few minutes talking about the festival that's happening during John chapter 7 through chapter 9. And so for a quick reminder, a quick overview, I'm going to remind you of what that's about. It's called the Fast Festival or Feast of the Tabernacles. This was a feast um, of reflection, of celebration, and of anticipation. 
This was to remind the, the people, the, the Jewish people, of the wilderness wanderings and God's provision as they wander the desert, desert in the first five books of the Bible. The celebration came on the heels of the harvest that happened in their time, celebrating God's provision. The feast pointed to the coming Messiah or Savior as God's provision. Simply enough, this feast, this celebration, was a time to celebrate and give thanks for God's provision for his people. And Jesus, as a Jewish man, would have attended this celebration feast. And here we see that he took a stand on the last and most important day of the festival. Now, to understand what Jesus is actually saying in this text, we have to understand what happens at the festival. Each day of the seven days of the festival, a priest would go down from the Temple Mount to the Pool of Siloam. He would descend the stairs and he would go to this pool that was flowing with living water. It was living water, and they would take these golden cisterns, and they would draw water from the well, from this living water, and they would walk back up the stairs, and they would take it to the altar at the temple, and they would pour it out, giving thanks to God. Once the water was drawn, they would go and they would pour it out, and this happened every single day of the feast. And then on the last and most important day of the feast, it happened seven times. Seven times they would leave the temple and go draw water and come back and thank God for his provision by pouring it out. And this ceremony is taking place so that those present at the feast, as they're there, they would celebrate God's provision. They would celebrate the provision by waving branches in the air. They would have a branch in one hand, a tree branch signifying the tabernacles or the tents that they had built. And they would have a a citrus branch in the other hand, waving that, thanking God for the harvest and his provision. And they would recite these these psalms that you found in the middle of the book of Psalms, Psalms 113 through 118. And here's a sample of what one of those psalms said. These are called the Hallel Psalms. These are the Hallelujah Psalms. And Psalm 113 said this, says this, Hallelujah, give praise, servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be blessed both now and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, let the name of the Lord be praised. The Lord is exalted above all. All nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one enthroned on high, who stoops down to look at the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the trash heap, in order to seat them with the nobles, with the nobles of his people. He gives the childless woman a household, making her the joyful mother of children. Hallelujah. And they would recite these six psalms as this is happening. And not only would they recite those six psalms, they would also recite part of what we read earlier in um, Isaiah chapter 12, that joy will come from the springs of living water, that salvation comes from those that water. So this entirety of this celebration was to give thanks to God and his provision. It reminds them of the provision that God gave them in the desert with the water flowing from the rock. You can read about that in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 that he has provided them water in Jerusalem to drink, water to water the crops, water to sustain life. Now we live in a time, right, in a place where we aren't as concerned with water as they were at their time. Remember, they lived in a desert. And so it wasn't as easy as them going to the kitchen and turning on the faucet to get water. They had to rely on the Lord. They had to absolutely depend on the Lord to provide for them. He had to provide the rain for the crops. He had to provide the water to supply their bodies. 
When was the last time that you actually gave thanks for the water that's flowing in your house? These men and these women absolutely knew that they had to depend on God to provide the water, and they were thankful. They were thankful. Anyway, as this ceremony was wrapping up, Jesus stood up and he cried out. Jesus stood up and he shouted with a loud voice. Now, Jesus didn't always stand up and shout with a loud voice, but this time he wanted to make a point. And what did he say? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. As they're watching this water be poured out on the altar of provision for God, he's saying, if you're really and truly thirsty, come and take a drink of me. The one who believes in me, as the scripture said, will have streams of living water flowing from deep within him. He didn't want those at the festival to lose focus or to miss out on the importance of the festival. That the the festival and this feast and this celebration pointed to him all along. That it showed him all along. This festival was looking forward to the provision of God in the Savior, Jesus Christ. That they were thinking about that rock in the desert that followed them around, that provided them with water. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that they all drank from that same spiritual rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them around, and that rock was Christ. So Christ was with his people in the desert. That Jesus was the rock in the desert that followed them along and provided water for them. Because Jesus is the one who is the water that satisfies. He is the water that quenches our thirst. He is the water that brings life. He is the ultimate provision from the Father. Think about it. We can't live without water. We can't live without water. We've had a, a pretty dry spell as far as rain goes the last couple of weeks. And, and I was telling, I think I was telling some people the other day that as, a, as I was walking in my yard, you could just hear the, the, the ground crackling beneath my feet, right? That that grass was all dying because it hadn't had water. But we're the same way. Like if we don't have water in our body, we are going to dry up, dry up and we are going to wither away. And we're not just simply physical beings. We are spiritual beings as well, right? Meaning that we don't need just physical water to drink, but we need water for our souls. We need water to satisfy us. And here Jesus offers up an invitation to come and drink of this living water. And who is this invitation for? It's for anyone who is thirsty. Everyone who is thirsty. So if you're not thirsty, you're not invited. But what does it mean to be thirsty? It means that you are desperate, that you are needy, that you are unsatisfied, that your body, your mind, and your soul is parched and needing something more, needing some refreshment. Your body sends you certain signals when you're dehydrated. Your mouth starts to get dry. Your muscles start to ache. Right? You get headaches, brain fog, fatigue when you're starting to get dehydrated, all because you're not drinking water to hydrate your body. Now, Corey and I, we have a friend back in North Carolina who suffers from intense migraines. She suffers from intense migraines. And if you looked at her, you think, okay, well, she's pretty healthy. She's healthy enough. But all that she drinks is soda. That's all she ever drinks is soda. She never drinks water, water, and her body is reacting to the lack of hydration that comes from water. Even though there is water in soda, it's not the same as drinking pure water. It's a counterfeit hydration. Right? She never notices that she's dehydrated because she's filling what she wants to with the soda. That counterfeit seems to satisfy. It tastes good. It feels good. But it doesn't do what pure water will do. The soda, soda will never hydrate and cure the thirst like pure and unadulterated water. Likewise, your soul is spiritually dry. 
if it hasn't been hydrated with living water. Your soul is thirsty. Your soul is desperate, needy, and unsatisfied. You search for and you feed your soul the things that you think are going to satisfy its needs. And how do you do that? You try to cure your thirst with these counterfeits. We chase after pleasure, money, recognition, relationships, power, or satisfaction. We chase after those things because we believe that we will find satisfaction in them. And they may satisfy for a while, but they end up getting old and it ends up never being enough. Our souls are still dehydrated when we're taking in the counterfeits. We are still thirsty. But here's the thing, sometimes we don't care that we're still thirsty. We don't care that there's something better out there, that we want to be dehydrated no matter the cost. We would rather drink sodas and risk the headaches than drink water and be refreshed. We'd rather seek self-satisfaction and risk the consequences that run than run to the life-giving water. So here's what Jesus offers. He offers streams of living water. Those streams are offered to everyone, but only the thirsty will seek him. And Jesus says that if you realize your thirst, if you know you're missing something, if you know that you are desperate, if you know that you are needy and you are unsatisfied with the things of this world, then he will satisfy you that you can find satisfaction in him. You see, to know that you're thirsty is a good thing. To know that there is more to life is a good thing. To know that there is something greater, better, and more magnificent is a grace of God. Because the things of this world, the counterfeits, they will distract us from our need for the reality, the real water. The money the sex, the fame, the relationships, the pride, and the self-satisfaction will appear to satisfy. They will dull our senses to the fact that our souls long for something better. Self-satisfaction will dull our minds, our hearts, and our souls to the true thirst that we have. Because as soon as something doesn't satisfy, we don't want to run to the true source. We want to run onto the next thing that might satisfy us. And God will eventually give us over to our own thirst. So Romans 1 tells us. People will lose their thirst for God, for something, they will lose their thirst for something more deep, something more meaningful, because they are distracted with the things that can satisfy me now. There are probably some of you in here right now that are thirsty for something more. You are seeking the living water only God can provide. Stop drinking from the counterfeit and turn to the true source. So how do we have these springs of living water? How can we drink from the waters that will satisfy? Jesus tells us that we must believe in him. We have to trust him. We have to follow him because he is the source of living water. So then the question is, what does it mean to trust him? What does it mean to be satisfied in Jesus? What does it mean to believe? It means that we believe that we are sinners separated from a holy God. And that isn't and that this isn't how life should be. We are God's creation created to be in communion with him. But our hearts are wicked, and we rebel against God's goodness and God's grace, making us children of wrath as opposed to children of God. All of us are destined to spend eternity separated from God because of our sinfulness and our rebellion towards him. There needs to be a way for us to be brought back into a right standing with God. So God made a way. God made a way 
a way for us to be transformed, a way for us to go from being children of wrath to children of God, a way for us to be made right with him. And that way is through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to live the perfect life. He came to die the death that each one of us deserved. He came to take on the wrath of God so that we could be forgiven. This forgiveness comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We have to trust that Jesus is the only way that we can have a relationship with God. We have to trust that Jesus paid it all, and there's nothing more that I owe. It is Jesus alone that saves us, not my moral decisions, not my church attendance, not my giving to charity or a church. There is nothing that I can do to earn God's grace. God's grace is free. And when you drink from that grace, you will be changed. But in order to have that grace, in order to be changed, you have to turn away from your sin. In the Bible, we call it repentance. You have to repent from your sin, to change your mind, to turn around. You have to abandon your sin and cling to Christ. You have to abandon the counterfeit and cling to the truth. Give up the life of sinfulness and embrace the life of holiness. And when we believe that truth, we are changed and we turn towards Christ. We get to drink from the well of living water. We get to find our satisfaction, not in what we do, what we chase, or who we are, but rather who Christ is. And this isn't just a one-time decision. It's a lifestyle change, a pursuit of holiness. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus and you are living a holy life, are you living the holy life that he has called you to? Have you abandoned and turned away from your sin? Are you clinging to Jesus? Now know that you won't be perfect. This is a journey. The Christian life is a journey, and Jesus is shaping you and molding you to look more like him every single day, so don't get discouraged. Each day that you are seeking Jesus, you will grow more and more to look like him. But if you don't desire him, if you aren't thirsty for what he has to offer, you need to check your heart. You might be settling for something less than he has to offer. Because when Jesus changes us, there's something else that Jesus tells us happens. Did y'all notice that in the next verse? We find personal satisfaction in Jesus, but we also get to be a blessing to others. The streams of living water that come from Jesus will flow out from us. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't stop at belief. It simply begins there. Following Jesus means that doing the things that Jesus does, loving people, caring for the brokenhearted, taking care of those who are less fortunate, being a blessing and cultivating the kingdom where we live, where we work, where we play. Followers of Jesus are to be life-giving people. People who use our actions to carry the burdens of others. People who use our gifts to serve other people. People who use our words to encourage and build up. We are to bring life. We are to speak life. We are to be life. So are you giving life as a follower of Jesus? Are you positively impacting your home, your community, your workplace with the gospel of Jesus? Many times people think about and ask, what's God's will for my life? What does God have planned for me? God's will for your life is that you be a blessing. That's what God's will for your life is. That you would love God with all that you have, right? With your mind, your heart, your soul, your very being, and that you would love people as yourself. That's God's will for your life. 
Because Jesus, because of Jesus, you have that capacity. You have that ability. You have that in your heart if you have the springs of living water within you. If your thirst has been satisfied by Jesus, then you can be a blessing to people. You should be a blessing to people. Listen to what John says right after Jesus talks about these living waters. John 7, 39. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believe in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit. The Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When Jesus speaks these words, the Holy Spirit has not yet come to rest and dwell within believers. Most certainly he was active in the lives of believers, but he didn't dwell with them continually. One of the promises that Jesus makes later in the Gospel of John is that it's a good thing that he is going to go and die because soon the Holy Spirit would be sent and dwell within him. I don't know if y'all follow the church calendar often or not, but today is the day that we celebrate Pentecost in the church liturgical calendar. It's the day of Pentecost, the day that the Holy Spirit came and dwelt with those men and women sitting in the upper room after Jesus' resurrection. Today is a day that we celebrate the, the fact that God dwells with every single one of his followers. And if you believe in Jesus, and if you trust in Jesus, and if you have been transformed by Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit living within you. And that is where the springs of living water come from. God living in you. You are a representation of God everywhere you go. In this dark world, you are an ambassador for Jesus. You are the springs of living water that are run in a dry and desert land. That's a high, and that's a mighty calling. So let me ask you, how are you doing? Are you being a blessing? Are you living the life that God has called you to? If you carry the name of Christ, are you representing him with a life that's life-giving? If not, maybe it's time to reflect and think about what it means to belong to Jesus. And if you are, then keep up the good work. I'm proud of you. So is Jesus. We should be in awe and astounded that Jesus invites us to drink from his spring of living water. And that when we do, because of the grace and mercy, we, we have those springs living within us, calling others to come and meet Jesus, extending that invitation out to them. Now there's something with invitations. Some people don't RSVP, right? Some people don't accept the invitation. And what we're going to see in the next couple of verses is those who have a different reaction to the invitation. So in verse 40, it says this, When some of the crowd heard the words, they said, This truly is the prophet. Others said, This is the Messiah. But some said, Surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem? where David lived, so the crowd was divided because of him. <laughs> Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. So the first thing we see is a response from the crowd. You see, it doesn't matter what Jesus says or does, people are always confused by him. The crowd here can't decide who he is. They can't decide if he's a prophet, if he's the Messiah, or if he's something else. They were reflecting on the fact that he doesn't look like, act like, or even come from where they believe. He had to come from. There's no way that the Messiah, the Savior, would come from the backwood city of Galilee. There's no way that the Messiah or Savior could come from the backwoods of Louise, right? There's no way that God could transform your life. But if we remember last week, Jesus may have grown up in Galilee, but he didn't come from Galilee. 
He came from the Father. He came from heaven. What the crowd doesn't know, they also bring up, is that this Messiah needs to come from Bethlehem. It has to be a, from David's lineage. They didn't know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They didn't know that his mom and his earthly father were tied back to David. They didn't know that. So they're looking at him and just assuming that he can't be the one. And if we're being absolutely honest, even if they had all the information, even if they knew everything about Jesus, they still probably wouldn't believe because they didn't want to believe. They're perfectly fine sipping on the soda of destruction rather than drinking from the waters of life. They don't know that they are thirsty because they are dull to their need. In verse 44, we see again for the third time that somebody tried to seize Jesus. They try to grab Jesus. They try to take Jesus and, and make him something that he isn't. They try, but they can't. Why not? Because it's not Jesus' time. The time has not yet come. He will not lay down his life until he is ready. The people are divided over who Jesus is. But guess what? So is the leadership, the religious leadership in Jerusalem. Verse 45. Then the servants came, down, came to the chief priest and Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him? The servants answered, No man ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to him, Are you fooled too? Have any other rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously and who was one of them, said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? You aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied. Investigate, and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So here we saw, we saw a reaction from the crowds, and now we get to see a reaction from the leaders. If you remember back in verse 32, the Pharisees and the chief priests sent some servants to go arrest Jesus. And they can't do so, and they come back with a report in verse 45 and 46. And the servants are in awe by the way that Jesus speaks. This is definitely reminiscent of Mark chapter 1, verse 22. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching as one who had authority and not like the scribes. The servants are dumbfounded by Jesus' ability to teach and to speak. Or maybe they're astounded by what he is saying. Remember, Jesus is essentially saying that he is the one who has fulfilled the festival. Like this whole time, your whole history, you've been looking for satisfaction and I am here. He's the one that the people have longed for. He's the one that they expected, but he isn't going to do it the way that they expected him to do it. But most of the Pharisees are not impressed with Jesus. One commentator says it this way. He says that the Pharisees are the guardians of correct theology. And everyone else was both unknowing, stupid, and cursed. Nobody else knew how to handle the law like the Pharisees. That's what they believed. They thought they were too dumb to understand what was actually happening. There was no way that they could believe that Jesus or any other person could come and speak with the clarity that he did. They thought the crowds were duped. You see, the Pharisees were the gatekeepers of theology, the gatekeepers of practice. They were the rulers the make and, and rule makers, and Jesus was threatening them. He was threatening their power. It's one thing for the crowd, the untrained, the ignorant, the stupid, to believe, but it would be more scandalous if one among their ranks believed. And then guess what? We have one among their ranks who says something. John gives us a little glimpse into a man that we saw back in John chapter 3. The man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus stands up to the other Pharisees and he even points out their own 
ignorance of their own law or their own blinding to their own law. Right? He says, do you want to do something that goes against our own law? They were willing to judge and violate the law to apprehend Jesus, and that is unthinkable to Nicodemus. And they just want to push him aside. Right? The immediate comeback from those present to Nicodemus was to accuse him and discredit him. They accuse him of being from the same backwoods town as Jesus, insinuating that he isn't worthy of having an opinion, that he may be a little biased, or that his opinion is a little tainted because he came from the same place. Again, they are more focused on where Jesus grew up than what he is teaching and what he is doing. His works and his words should be enough to prove that he is from God, but they are blind because they don't want to believe. Why? Because they are satisfied with their religious activity. They're satisfied with their own self-righteousness. They're satisfied with anything but Jesus because the satisfaction in themselves has dulled them to the reality of who is standing before them. So let me ask you, where are you this morning? Are you a part of the camp that believes and trusts in Jesus? Or are you still curious, not knowing what to think about him? Or do you reject him completely? Because here's you have a choice to make. The invitation is open. Are you thirsty? Do you want to drink from the well of life? Come to Jesus, and he will satisfy your heart, your mind, and your soul. Now, the first Sunday of every month, we do a corporate uh, communion. So if I could have... Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.